So, here we are right at the end of our series on uh, God and My Stuff. Hopefully you've found it a helpful series. We've, we've covered some broad territory in this series. I mean, it's, it's, it's hit a lot of different themes. If you've been here over the past five or six weeks, we've, we've hit on everything from consumerism, what it means to live in a consumer culture and, and how we can confront that with the story of, of the gospel. We've talked about being open-handed as opposed to tight-fisted, being generous people. Uh, we've talked about being content and learning to say enough in regard to our, our stuff and our money. Uh, we've talked about giving to the church and tithing, all of that controversial territory. And then last week, Chris Clark did a great job of opening up a global perspective on people in need and brought out some really interesting information about the needs very local to uh, our own, our own uh, country here, some of the neediest and poorest people in the world, four hours flight from Auckland International Airport. And he told some of these stories and just helped us to see some of the needs and some of the, the poverty that's there and practical ways that we can respond to that. So I just hope that there's been something there that you've been able to grab a hold of and maybe that God has just set before you some, some next step that you can take, not out of guilt, not out of fear, and not out of legalism and not out of obligation. We really have not gone there. But just as a response to his grace and his goodness and his abundance and his generosity to us, is there something that um, God's just set before you, a change that your family could make, one thing you could practice, one area that maybe you've been wrestling with that God is just nudging you gently and saying, here's a next step in regard to your money, in regard to your stuff, in regard to whatever it is. This is what I'm asking you to do. What I want to do today is uh, draw a few loose strands together and run through a few different passages of Scripture. Uh, some of these are passages that have come up in conversations that I've had with people through the series. Uh, one of them is a passage that a life group has asked um, for some more clarity about. And so they're, they're really the result. Today is really the result of some of the dialogue that's been going on over the past five or six weeks, which has all been great stuff. And hopefully you've had some good conversations, life groups, families, friendship circles, and been able to wrestle some of this stuff through. So uh, there's not one particular theme other than God and my stuff that's going through this morning, but I want to just look at a few different passages and uh, flesh them out a bit as they speak to various parts of this whole, um, this whole issue. And, uh, and this is going to be a particular challenge for me this morning because this week... I managed to spill an entire cup of coffee all over my open Bible. So everything from Psalm 102 onwards is a mess here. You know, it's just like all the... I'll tell you this, though. The, the one consolation here is that I found out the pages of the TNIV translation are not very absorbent, which is good, because the coffee just kind of tends to go right over the top of the pages, and it doesn't soak in too much. So just another advantage of the TNIV... <laughs> They really thought of everything, those translators, I tell you. It was good stuff. So if my pages stick together hopelessly this morning, you'll know what's going on. My whole Bible smells of Robert Harris. But um, anyway, it is what it is. So let us begin. If you've got a Bible, it's a good day to have it open and be thumbing through the pages as we go. We'll just look at a few texts. First one is Malachi 3. And uh, this, is, this, this, this came up in connection to what we've said about giving and tithing and that sort of stuff. It's a classic text on tithing that you might have heard in, in a church context or somewhere in, in, in regard to tithing and giving, and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard-hitting. So I just want to look a bit more closely at what this is saying. Malachi 3, uh, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will turn to you 
says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. It's a pretty full-on passage, and uh, I've got to say, it's very tempting to use this to tell you all how important it is that you tithe to the church. And pastors used, I mean, this is like a favorite tithing passage, you know, it's just like, if you're not tithing, you're robbing God, and you know, we can lay on the guilt and the fear, you can just hear it all coming. Um, if you were here when we talked about giving and tithing, you probably start to pick up the fact that there's a bit of a disconnect between the situation that Malachi is speaking to and that God is speaking to and the issue of giving to a church as, as, as we think about it. Uh, because the whole point of this passage is about tithing. And the whole point of the tithe system was something that was unique to Israel as a nation, as a theocracy. A theocracy is a nation that has, is, is, is governed by God without human government, effectively. There were leaders over Israel, but they were a theocracy. God was the head of the nation. And this was a unique setting in the life of Israel, and the tithe system really functioned as an income tax system for Israel as a theocracy. That was the way of supporting those who ran the country. That was the way of providing some social welfare. That was the way of running national feasts and festivals. That's how the tithe system worked. And if you remember, we talked about these three different tithes, and one of them, taken up every three years, was a tithe that was supposed to be bring, brought into the storehouses within the towns of Israel. And they were kept in the storehouse, and then they were distributed to those who had need, to the Levite that, that had extra requirements, to the poor, the people that, that Grant mentioned in the passage he read from Deuteronomy, the foreigner, the immigrant, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, the needy within Israel. They were the ones who would then come to the storehouses in all these little towns in Israel and take what they needed. So I think the fact that Malachi is talking about a tithe that is supposed to be brought into the storehouse means he's likely to be talking about that particular tithe, the tithe that came into these storehouses. So it's a tithe that is all about the poor. It's all about the needy. It's all about helping those who were impoverished and marginalized within Israel. And isn't it amazing the way that God says to them, if you don't give this tithe, if you don't give to the poor, you are in effect robbing me. It's a profound statement in the scriptures of God so identifying himself with the plight of the poor and the needy that he can say, if you do not show generosity, if you withhold your generosity to the poor, you are in effect robbing me because God is on the side of those who lack power and privilege and prestige and he is lifting them up. So to withhold generosity from the poor is in effect to rob God. That's the heart of what Malachi is saying. And this was particularly serious for Israel because this tithe was part of their covenant obligation to God. It was part of the law. It was right there in, in Deuteronomy that they were supposed to be doing this. And if they didn't, they had effectively broken a covenant with God. They'd broken the law. They'd broken their entire relationship down with God. 
And the law is very clear, especially in Deuteronomy, that if Israel disobeys, they bring themselves under a curse. And if they obey, they bring themselves under blessing. And the curses and the blessings are almost always to do with the land. The land was the fulcrum within Israel's relationship with God. So if they obey, they're blessed because the land is going to be friendly towards them. The, the vines will be full, the tree, the fruit trees will be full, the land will be fertile for them, and it will produce good things, and their enemies will, will stay out. But if they disobey the covenant, the land will turn against them. It'll be hostile, the land will be barren, and their enemies will come in and overrun them. That's generally how the promises and blessings worked. So Malachi is saying, if you withhold the tithe, you are effectively breaking covenant with God, you're breaking the law, and therefore you are invoking upon yourself a curse whereby your land will turn against you. Your land will be hostile towards you, and it's no longer going to be fruitful. So you can see all of this is quite specifically tied to Israel's covenant relationship with God. We just don't have that same connection today, spiritually speaking, to a particular piece of land. We're not under the same covenant they were, and we don't have the same tithing system that they did. So that alone should make us very, very wary of just taking this passage and applying it verbatim into a context of tithing to the church. And we've got to be careful. In fact, we shouldn't talk about this as tithe to the church or else you're robbing God and you're going to be under a curse. That's just bad theology. It's bad Bible interpretation because it just takes this Old Testament situation, plonks it into the middle of a church life. It's not responsible to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that this passage can't speak to us. It wasn't written to us, but it can speak to us. Just because we're no longer under a tithing system doesn't mean God no longer has a heart for the poor and the needy. He certainly does. And I think that's the heart of what Malachi, this passage, Malachi 3, is saying to us. That to withhold our generosity from the poor in all kinds of ways is an effect to rob God. The point here is not so much giving to a local church, although that's certainly important, but the point here is that we have that same concern and compassion for the poor and the needy and the marginalized, wherever we find them, wherever we encounter them, whether in this church community in our broader community and social circles, nationally, or even in the global context. That we have the same heart for the poor. And we do all we can, and it might not be a specific amount, and it might not be a particular, you know, rigid uh, thing, and certainly not a legalistic exercise, but that we have the same kind of compassion. And we, and we take the heart of the Father, who moves towards the poor with grace and with mercy and with compassion, and we seek to have our own character shaped around that that we exercise the same type of generosity towards those who are in need that God exercises towards those who are in need. And that we exercise the same grace toward them that God has given to us in saving us and redeeming us. He turns our hearts toward those who are in need. So I think the way that we are to take the Malachi passage today is not to apply it verbatim into a church tithing giving context, but as a reminder that as followers of God and followers of Jesus, we are to demonstrate a heart for the poor that bringing the, tithe, what bringing the tithes into the storehouse was for Israel would be for us the equivalent of showing generosity in a multitude of ways towards those who are needy around us and a recognition that God himself is identified with the poor and therefore we should as well. Okay. Now, this is going to feel like a real gear shift, but flick over to Luke chapter 14. And I want to talk about a couple of passages in Luke 14 that came up in the context of some disturbing scriptures or some scriptures that people were a bit concerned by that seem to suggest 
God requires Christians to give everything they own to the poor. There's a couple of verses, particularly in Luke, which make this blanket statement that disciples of Jesus should give away everything they own, and unless you give away everything you own, you're not really following Jesus. One of these, and probably the most hard-hitting of these, is in Luke 14, uh, verse 33, I think it is. Yeah, verse 33. In the, Jesus, say, Jesus is speaking. He says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's pretty challenging stuff. That's pretty radical. Uh, basically, it sounds like Jesus is saying, unless you sell every single thing you've got and give it away, you're not really a follower of Jesus, which would mean none of us are really followers of Jesus, right? Well, maybe you are, I don't know, maybe there is someone here that's given up everything that they own, but this is a blanket general statement, unless you give up, give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. It's so important with, with every passage in the scripture, but particularly ones like this, that we pay attention to context and look at the context in which Jesus is saying this. If you go back just a little bit, he's been giving these images of what it means to be a disciple. He's been giving us these metaphors, these images of discipleship and the key one that he gives us is that being a disciple is to take up your cross and follow me he says if you want to be my disciple you must carry your cross take up your cross and follow me the idea is that to be a disciple of Jesus is a bit like crucifixion I don't think Jesus is just saying if you want to be my disciple you have to be prepared to be a martyr but he's saying to follow me is a death it is to take up your cross and people that took up their cross they took him up to die that's, what, that's the point, is that if you took up your cross physically, you were going to die. So Jesus is saying to us, it is a radical thing to follow me. It is a type of death. It is a death to an old life. It is a complete death to an old self. That's why being a Christian is not like being a vegetarian. It's not something that you can just tack on to your life, a thing that I do, a thing that I have. It's a complete identity shift. It's a complete identity. It's a total renewal of myself. And we sometimes think that being a Christian is dying to the bad stuff. You know, I've got to give up all the bad stuff I was doing, stop the bad behavior, and then I'm going to raise to this new life where I'm on my best behavior. It's far, far more than that. Jesus is asking us to die, not just to the bad stuff, but to everything. Everything in our life, the good as well, every relationship that we have, everything that we own, every part of who we are, this entire person, goes through a crucifixion when we come to follow Jesus. That's how radical it is. That Paul said it this way, it's to be crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. Being crucified with Christ means that old self is completely given up. The good and the bad and everything with it, it is laid down and it goes through a death. And then on the other side of that, our self receives a resurrection to new life. Dying and rising with Christ. We're raised to this new life where we have a new self. Now, that doesn't mean that in the process of dying to our old self and being raised to this new self, it doesn't mean we walk away from every commitment in our lives. It doesn't mean we literally sell and give up everything that we own. But it means that everything that was part of that life dies. And we see it new and we approach it differently and we are different people in the midst of it in this resurrected life that we have with Christ. That's why he says in the same passage, just another couple of verses earlier, that anyone who doesn't hate their father and mother and their brother and their sister can't be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't literally telling us you've got to hate your immediate family. Of course, he's not saying that. But he's saying compared to the relationships that you have with this old self and this old life, 
being filled with Christ and being consumed by Him and having a relationship with Him that is totally central, it is a death to these other relationships compared to the love and the focus that we should have on Christ as our entire life and being and self so completely wrapped up in Him. It's, it's like these other relationships are rejected. It's like they're despised. Now, they're not actually rejected. We still love our families, of course, but compared to the love that we now have for Christ, compared to how consuming He is for us and in us and with us, and we find our entire life through us, these other relationships are just so distant and so secondary. It's the same thing with our money and our stuff. It's not that you give up everything you own, although we are to be prepared to do that if called to. It's not that you literally need to sell everything you have and give to the poor, but it's that you, you surrender all of that stuff in following Jesus. We give it up in the sense of saying, it's yours. It's not my, this is what we talked about right in that very first week, that we're giving it up and saying, God, you're the owner, not me. This money you've given me, this bank balance, these investments, this house, whatever, it's your, it, you are the owner of it. And I want to center my life around you and around your will and around glorifying Christ and approach my stuff and my money differently. If you call me to give it away, I will. If you call me to walk away from it, I will. But more importantly than that, I want to go through this process of dying with Christ, being crucified with Him. And it's no longer me that's living, but you living your life through me. You living your life through my relationships. You living your life through my money and through my stuff so that I'm using it as you would have me use it. Not the way that I just want to use it for my own sense of self-entitlement. So the heart of what Jesus is saying is not a literal commandment to give up everything. It's a heart change whereby we die to our old self with all its money and possessions and relationships and everything and we raise to this new life where everything looks different and everything is now orbiting around the center that is Christ. Everything's found a new place. Everything looks different. Everything's been raised to a new life just as we have. And one other thought on this. These passages where Jesus says, if you, if, unless you give away everything, you can't be my disciple. There's an intriguing little verse in Luke 8. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just tell you. It mentions a few prominent people that were contributors, financial contributors, to Jesus' ministry. One of them was a woman called Joanna in Luke 8, 3. She's mentioned, and she was the, the wife of a guy called Cusa, who was the manager of King Herod's household, which is an intriguing little story in its own right, that somehow Herod's wife became a follower of Jesus and became a benefactor to his ministry. She's financially supporting his ministry. Now, if Joanna had taken literally this verse where Jesus says, unless you give up everything you have, you can't follow me, she would have had nothing to contribute to Jesus' ministry. She would have had nothing to give him unless she just gave it all over to Jesus. But you see, she didn't walk away from all of her stuff. She didn't just give it to the poor and the needy. She used her stuff for God's glory. She used it to be a benefactor of Jesus' ministry. It's the same thing that you see in the book of Acts. And on one hand, you find this idea that the Christians were selling their possessions, giving it to each other as they had need. But then just a few chapters later, you find that they're meeting in the homes of different Christians. So obviously those Christians didn't sell their homes. Obviously, these people didn't give up everything they had. They kept their homes, and they're using them for the church to be gathered in those places. They're not just literally walking away from their stuff, but they're using their money and their stuff in new ways. That's the point. So don't get hung up on the literal idea of give it all away, give it all up. That can actually be ineffective in terms of God's kingdom, just to sort of blanketly get rid of it. But think strategically 
about how we can use the stuff that God's given us for His glory and to bring little pieces of His new creation to earth. There's a related text to this that came up in a conversation in Luke 18, verse 22. Another one of these blanket statements, these radical verses where Jesus is calling us to discipleship. Luke 18, 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now again, context is so important. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the rich ruler that came up to him and wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. And he was keeping the commands and he was keeping the law and he was doing a lot of good things. But Jesus knew that the thing that was preventing him from truly and fully entering the kingdom of heaven was his money and his stuff. And Jesus put his finger on it by challenging this guy to give up everything he had. And in this case, he did specifically say to him, give it up, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. Now, does that mean that this is a general commandment that Jesus gives to every one of us or every one of his followers? No. The point is that what he's encouraging this rich man to do is the same thing that he said in the last passage, to take up your cross and follow me. For this rich ruler, that meant giving up everything to the poor because that's what was hanging him up. And that's where his heart was being troubled. And that's the one thing that was holding him back. That was his vice. That was his Achilles heel. He could not part with money. He couldn't give stuff up. If Jesus had been talking to someone else, he may have put his finger on a completely different issue. Uh, an unhealthy relationship, an addiction, whatever. Some, some problem of belief. But for this guy, the issue that he was stumbling over was his inability to deal in a healthy way with the money that God had given him. And Jesus just penetrates to the heart of it by saying, what you need to do is sell everything you've got and give to the poor because he knows that that will expose the heart, that will expose the unwillingness this guy had to be truly crucified with Christ. So the point for us here is, again, not literally to follow this as kind of a timeless commandment, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Of course, we should be generous to the poor, but we should see beneath the surface here the same idea that Jesus said in Luke 14. Unless any of you are willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciples. And taking up our cross looks different for every single one of us. There are different things that hold us each back. There are different things that we struggle with. There are different parts of life that we are holding on to unnecessarily. Different areas. In, in, in a room this size, all kinds of different things that we are clutching for ourselves and unwilling to give up and if Jesus was speaking to us each individually, he wouldn't be saying exactly the same thing he said to the rich ruler. He'd be putting his finger on what it is in your life that is holding you back. And it would be just as painful, I guarantee you. It would be just as uncomfortable and it would make you squirm just as much because he'd be saying, unless this issue is resolved. Again, don't hear in this just morals and good behavior. Jesus is putting his finger on the heart and saying there are issues in our life that are indicative of where our heart is at. And unless you're willing to really give that up, unless you're willing to lay that area of your life down, you cannot be truly my disciple because it's not a life that's been surrendered. It's not a life that's been given over. This is a call to radical discipleship. It's exactly why Jesus in Luke 14 says, you know, if anyone wants to build a tower, doesn't he first sit down and consider the cost? It's a total identity shift. It's a big commitment. But it's not literally in a wooden kind of way just showering other people with money. It's thinking about what we have, giving that up to the Lord, 
and then seeking him for how we are best to use it. Okay, now I want to make a couple of uh, comments. I told you this would feel like it's a bit all over the map, but just stay with me. We're going to stay in Luke, uh, but this time Luke 6, and I want to just say a couple of things about something I've mentioned at various times through this series that um, needs a little bit more clarification. I've, I've mentioned the idea at, at different times of uh, prosperity theology or prosperity theology, and I've kind of thrown that term around without really giving it much definition. I just want to make a couple of clarifying comments on what we're talking about with that stuff so we're all on the same page. And to do that, let me read a verse here that is a, a, a classic text for prosperity theology in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Again, Jesus is speaking. A lot of these verses seem to come from the Gospels, don't they? Jesus said a lot about money. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. This is sounding good already. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is a favorite text of uh, what is known generally and broadly as prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel or sometimes the health and wealth gospel. The basic premise of this teaching is that God wants you to be rich. Okay, if, you, if you don't understand anything else about it, that's the, that's the key idea. God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be financially and materially prosperous and wealthy. That is a key thing God wants you to have. And one of the main ways in which prosperity teachers uh, believe this will come about is through your giving. So that's the paradox. As you give, God will then give to you financially, dollars, the car, the batch. It's coming your way as you give. And sometimes people will put a particular figure on it. Um, there's a verse in Mark, Mark 10, I think it is, where Jesus says, anyone who's given up husband, whatever, no, not husband or wife, but anyone who's given up, uh, you know, something or other, what does he say? You'll, you'll receive back a hundredfold or is it tenfold? You'll receive back tenfold. Right. And so I read one, one, um, Christian prosperity teacher who said, you know, that's basically a good business deal. You know, you walk away from this, you give this up, God will give you tenfold back. It's basically, you see it basically like a business transaction. So if I give a certain amount of money, I know that one way or another, God is going to give me a certain amount of money or equivalent material value back. You can take it to the bank and there it is. So that's kind of the, that, 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 that's the basic deal. Now, like any bad theology, it gets some things right. And there is some truth there, and it certainly is true that giving to others does bring a blessing. That's, I think that's quite clear from the Scriptures, that, that giving to others and being a generous person does bring into our lives a blessing. The question is, what type of blessing? And what is this reward? Because Jesus talks about reward. He certainly talks about God repaying us and given it will come back to you, but the question is what's coming back to you? And the problem with prosperity theology is it really is completely captive to a Western, capitalist, money-obsessed culture. It's a product of that culture that can only see rewards, benefits, and repayments in monetary terms. So it just reads the Bible that way. And every time there's any mention of reward, repayment, blessing, Cha-ching, dollar signs come up in their eyes. It must be talking about money because that, we're, see, we're, we're products of our own culture. 
We live out of our own story. And it's the same. You can see how it happens. It's an understandable thing, but it's not, it's not good. It's not right because it just puts a blanket over the whole Bible and reduces everything to monetary financial terms. That's not the kind of reward that's often being talked about when the Bible says repayment and, and God will give back to you and God will reward you. Why does it have to be monetary stuff? Even if you just look in this chapter, in Luke 6, a little bit earlier on, Luke has been talking of the dangers of riches. Woe to you who are rich, he says. Now again, nothing wrong with having money, but Luke's warning us of the dangers that wealth brings, that we can be so sidetracked by it, we can be so distracted from kingdom focus and God's priorities. It would be a strange thing for Luke to turn so quickly and then say, woe to the rich, but by the way, if you give, cha-cha-ching, God's going to give back to you, you're going to be the richest person in town. It just it doesn't connect with what he's saying. And even a few verses before this one, he's been encouraging us to give with no expectation of return, to give to your enemies, to lend freely without expectation of return. His whole agenda is getting us off this selfish focus where we only do stuff to get stuff back, where we only give in order that someone else would give to us. And he says, don't be like that. Don't be that kind of giver. Don't be that kind of lender, but be selfless with your giving. Again, it would be so strange for him to turn a corner now in this verse and then say, give and God's going to load you up with money, bring you the car, the boat, the whatever. It just doesn't connect with his theology as a whole. The reward I think that he's talking about is the reward both present and future of being in the center of God's will and having our character shaped into the character of a generous God. The reward, and you know this, the reward that comes from a generous act There is a blessing in it, isn't there? There is a blessing of feeling your own grip on your finances just loosen a little bit. The grip of feeling like how captive you've been to your money and your stuff, man, I'm being slowly, I'm being freed from it. God is changing me. He's shaping me. And most beautifully, he's shaping me into his image because he is supremely generous and giving. And I'm reflecting that image a bit more and a bit more and a bit more as I I become a generous person. Those of you that have given to others and seen the gratitude on their face know the reward that we're talking about. Those of you that have seen the relief that's come into someone else's life because of your generosity, that have seen a church strengthened or seen the poor helped or seen just someone else blessed because you've parted with a little bit of your hard-earned cash, you, you know there's a reward in that. You know there's a reward of just knowing that someone else has received a blessing. It just brings the blessing straight back into your life. And of course, in the biggest, broader sense, the reward and the blessing of knowing that we are participating in the building of God's kingdom here on earth as we do these things. And they last on and carry on and will somehow even become part of God's new creation that he's going to bring about one day. There's tremendous blessing in that. There's tremendous reward in that. But I don't think you want to be so reductionistic as to narrow it all down just to money. You become quite a selfish giver and you become a very narrow interpreter of scripture. That really wasn't Luke's agenda, and it's not the Scripture's agenda. There is blessing, and there is reward in our giving. But it's in the realm of our character being shaped, drawn into relationship with God, and participating with Him in what He's doing in this world. There's a lot more that could be said about prosperity theology. We won't say it here, but um, that's just a little bit of clarification as to what we've been talking about. All right, let me wrap all this up with just one final Scripture, and just a couple of thoughts as we finish that just pull some of what we've been talking about together in Matthew 6. Really well-known passage on wealth and possessions in Matthew 6 verse 19. We'll draw our whole series to a close with this. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You've probably heard that verse if you've been around church for, for some time. And Usually the way that we hear it talked about is that the alternatives are between storing up stuff on earth or between storing up these future rewards for ourselves that are going to be waiting for us in heaven when we die. So we get all motivated to do good things in the present because if I give to you and if I'm generous to you, that's another room in my mansion in heaven. Or that's another sports car in my garage in heaven. This is kind of the, uh, the maths that tend to go on with this kind of passage. I'm going to do good things because I'm just accumulating a little stockpile that's waiting for me in the sky when God finally calls me home. But can I just suggest that Jesus is not talking about the future at all in this passage. I don't think this is talking about here versus there, out there somewhere. And I don't think it's talking about now versus then. I think it's all here, and I think it's all now. Both the work and the treasure. And I think Jesus is setting before us two different ways of living, right here in the present, that bring about two different types of treasure, right here in the present. And it comes down to your understanding of heaven. What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? Whenever Jesus uses that word heaven, he's not talking about some far-off place that we go when we die. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven that's taking shape among us now. The realm of heaven sits side by side with the realm of earth. The realm of heaven is that place God resides with the angels. And constantly there is this, this move in the scriptures to bring a little bit of heaven across to earth. And what Jesus himself did through his own ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, is begun this intermingling of heaven with earth. So that there is this crossover beginning to happen. Little pieces of heaven are coming about on earth. Little pieces of God's new creation. Jesus is encouraging us to bring about the kingdom of heaven right here in all kinds of ways. So when he tells us not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven, he's really setting before us two different stories that we can live out of. Two different ways that we can live. There's the, there's the storing up treasures on earth way, where we constantly pursue the next thing, where we're enslaved to our consumer culture, and we live with a tremendous amount of anxiety about our money and our stuff. I think that's perhaps the biggest barometer of whether or not you're captive to the story of storing up treasures on earth. How much anxiety do you really feel about your money, about economic things, about your stuff? How much does it weigh on you? How much of your attention and your focus and your time does it really consume? Perhaps that's indicative that you are somehow in the store. And you may not be trying to build the big empire. You may not want this luxurious, but you, you just are. It is, a, it is such a focus for you. It's such an obsession for you. And perhaps God is just gently prompting you today that, hey, you're in this category. It's just become who you are. It's just become your identity. The treasures on earth, that's where your focus is. And Jesus invites us into this alternative. It's not a pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die alternative. It's a right-here-right-now alternative. That we surrender over our money and our stuff to him. And we participate with him in using it for his glory on earth. doesn't mean giving it all up, but it means approaching it in new ways. And behind this, and we've brought it out several times in this series, there has to be a deep trust in God. The way that we deal with our money and our stuff ultimately reveals just how much trust we have in our Heavenly Father. 
Do you really trust him? Do you really think he's trustworthy with your stuff? Can you trust him to look after your stuff? Because if not, that's when the fists close. That's when the generosity dries up. And that's when we spend our nights anxious about our stuff and our money and whether we're going to be able to get from here to where we want to be. But if we can develop a deep trust and confidence in God to provide for us, look after us, He clothes the lilies of the field, how much more precious are you to Him than them? He looks after the birds of the air, how much more important are you to Him than them? Will not your heavenly Father also take care of your needs? We just don't believe that. And so we clamor after wealth and money and we obsess over stuff because we don't believe that God's really trustworthy. But as we develop that trust, we can be set free from anxiety and fear, set free to participate with God in using our money and our stuff for His glory. Yes, to look after our families. Yes, to enjoy life, of course. But also to participate with Him in what He's doing on earth. Every night, I give Joshua a bath. It's my little father-son time with him. And one of the things that we've been learning to do in the bath is trying to get him to lie down on his back so that I can, I can wash his hair a bit more easily when he does that. So I sort of put my arm around his back and I, I, he's sitting down. I put my arm around him and I say, hey, Joshua, lie back. Just lean back, lean back. And you, the first few times we did this, you could just see the fear in his eyes. You know, what's going to happen here? My head is going to go straight under the water. This is going to be terrible. But as he just sort of leans back and I had to coax him and coax him and coax him to do this, he, he sort of lies back and then you just see this relief that comes over him. And he realizes, hey, dad's got me. It's okay. And then he starts enjoying it. He's kicking and paddling and he's sort of up and st- upstream and downstream and, and, and he's loving it, you know. And it just occurred to me in a simple way that maybe that's a little illustration of how God is trying to teach us about our money and our stuff. You know, he's trying to ultimately, what he's trying to do is teach us to trust him, to provide for us that He is going to be faithful to us, that He's going to look after us, that we can depend on Him, that we don't have to worry. And He's just trying to say to us, hey, lean back, lean back, lean back on my provision, lean back on my abundance, lean back on my faithfulness to provide for you. And we're so fearful of it because we worry that our head's going to go into the water. But He's just coaxing us to lean back. And I tell you, friends, when you do finally just lean back upon the, the loving and secure arms of your Heavenly Father, you find that He's got you all along. And there's no way he's going to let you go. He'll provide for you. He'll be faithful to you. And it's an incredibly fun ride participating with God in using the stuff that he's given us for his glory in the world and looking for those opportunities of ways that we can be generous and open-handed towards others and content with our stuff. All of it comes back to our trust and our dependence upon the God who will not let us go. So let's remember that and embrace that and that's what will give us new energy and new motivation to use our money and our stuff for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we just thank you, Lord, that you are a God who provides and that you're a God who's faithful. So help us to lean back upon your provision, to lean back upon your goodness, to lean back upon your grace and to know that you've got us in your hands, Lord. You're not going to let us go. We may not always have everything we've wanted, but you'll provide for us. And God, free us from fear, free us from any guilt, free us from any legalism, free us from any just doing stuff because we think we should. And God, set us free to really surrender everything we have to you and see our money with new eyes, see our stuff with new eyes, 
and seek to use what you have given us for your glory and your purposes and your kingdom in this world in all kinds of big and small ways in everyday life. Father, just put in front of us now what that next step might be for us. What are you calling us to? What challenge or opportunity are you placing before us? Give us the courage to respond to it. And we pray that in turn we would just know your faithfulness even more in our lives. Thank you that we can depend on you. And it's in your name we pray. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz. Thank you.